Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. Byron, it's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, you too. I had a chance to go back and listen to some of your back episodes. Awesome. And, uh, yeah. What's yeah, your feedback? Really really Give us some feedback. Good stuff. Very what, interesting what are, conversations. What did you like? Uh, well, I listened to the fundamentalists episode and the- Which I one is that? Rich, you mentioned that one. Which That's one number is that? seven. That's the one okay, where I wasn't feeling very good. I wasn't even going to actually participate. And it ended up being- And one we of went the off. We did. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, you guys did go off on that. Um, I, I've got a, a little bit of a background in the whole evangelical Christianity stuff. Um, very much post-evangelical Christian now. So there's certainly some congruities there in the background. Yeah. Well, in fact, um, Jonathan, one of the craziest things that happened as a result, and one of the reasons why I was so drawn to Byron and also his friend Scott is, um, I had some friends down in Ventura also were in the emergent group, right? They were right there out of the gates, right? And they were our worship leaders at church down here in Ventura. And, you know, they were always on their own thing, but they were always those kind of hipsters, right? And I loved them. I loved them to pieces, um, even though conservatively, you know, theologically, we didn't align a lot of things. Um, but when we moved up north to, to Rockland, um, and we were going through that phase of our own where Lisa, unfortunately, um, you know, dealt with a lot of gossip and pain. And we saw a lot of turnover at our church in Rockland. A lot of kind of scandalous stuff that happened too. So she was in, in a totally different place. I don't want to go to church. I'm kind of bummed on this whole thing. I just want to find a community that's kind of close knit and safe and kind of fun to discuss things. And so my friend, Allie and Brian said, you need to reach out to June Steckler, who was kind of heading up this convo club, if you would, post-construction or actually <laughs> post-evangelical and deconstruction and just kind of folks that were still some believed in God and others didn't. And we were just kind of doing life together and a lot of things about, you know, the Enneagram and all these things. So I walk into this um, room for the very first time and I talked to Scott, like we're like long lost buddies. We talked, like we were talking John Piper, like all this kind of stuff. And he'd been there, done that too. But it was just so funny meeting these kindred right. spirits. And Byron was one of his best friends there. And we just hit it off. Right. And I'm realizing very quickly that this is going to be an amazing kind of place to process, be safe and have great ideas kind of that opened up. And that's where I learned to love Byron so much. So um, Byron, thank you for being here. And, you know, I'll just like to make a quick introduction in terms of the reason why I was so um, interested in Byron coming on is, um, and, and Byron, I mentioned this in the email to you is, you know, we started off the podcast kind of being like, hey, you know, what's what's out there in terms of, you know, are we in a simulation? You know, things are crazy. Are, we're in this postmodern world and and what are things we can talk about and, and, and bring up, whether it's psychedelics or whether it's things that are designed to, to help heal our bodies or minds, et cetera, et cetera. And what we ended up finding out is after the guests started showing more and more, it dealt a lot with how do you, you know, heal yourself, right? There's a lot of self-healing going on. How do you recover from certain things? And I was thinking, you know, you would be amazing because you've been there, done that, seen that kind of classic, you know, all-American trajectory of evangelicalism, family, kids, but also been through divorce, 
pain of loss of friend and you know physical pain and yet like we mentioned you're living the two most blissful years of your life and also um jonathan um byron's also quite a bit of an introvert and i told him we'd go nice and we would have fun and you know see what happens right we're gonna draw the best out of them there you go great yeah yeah. So Byron, you know, um, we can make this as, you know, I've got some questions we, we throw down some ideas, but would you like to kind of give us a little background on, you know, where you are, maybe even start with why your, why your last two years have been so good, or, or maybe just tell us, you know, what's, what's something that you're doing right now that really has you excited about life? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I think it would be helpful just to give a, a little brief five minute overview of life journey up to this point, just because I guess that gives a bit more context as to why I am the way that I am now. Uh, but but I, I'm an actually a first generation immigrant to this country. So I came over when I was seven ish and I lived my uh, childhood pretty much as an orphan. Um, I, I don't know if you remember that from, from my whole backstory, but uh, but I was ended up placed in an orphanage for probably about three, four years of, of my life early on. And um, when my mother finally came over, we had a very tumultuous childhood and I ended up in foster care system and things like that. And that, that was a point in time where I was really grasping and reaching for, you know, what is life about? Because it sucks pretty bad. And at that point in time, grabbed a hold of evangelical Christianity because it gave me like a, a structure, right? There was there was a certainty, there was a worldview, there was there, there was a nice box that I could play in and have my uh, questions answered, right? And had had the book to go to, <laughs> right? The, the, the magic answer book. And so live that way for a while, put myself through, um, through undergrad and then through grad school and embarked on a career uh, in tech, actually, right? But, but I'm a finance guy, as you know, but I worked with primarily tech companies, uh, got married to my high, high school sweetheart, got married pretty young as a, as good evangelical Christians do, because that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yep. And had a couple kids and, and had, had a pretty good life uh, 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 for, for many years, as I thought. Um, and uh, what five or well, it's about seven years ago now, um, uh, just got hit with a real bombshell when my marriage blew up very, very unexpectedly at the time. And that happened right in the midst of a move toward deconstructing, uh, because I was also starting to do up to that point in time, I'm reading primarily in the box, right? Approved literature from within the evangelical Christian substructure. Uh, so so I had all the answers and all that. And I started reading outside of that and attended virtually a couple of different courses by some uh, uh, very smart scholars from Harvard and Princeton, things like that. And, and the more I started exploring the foundations of Christianity, and that is how we got the Bible and how the first century church formed in the first place, that started to uh, unravel a lot of my understanding of what faith was at the time. And that happened coincident with the class of my marriage. So the, so this was what seven years ago now. And it set me into quite a bit of an existential 
tailspin because not only did my family and life structure fall apart, but what I thought was the one true way mm -hmm. came apart very quickly. So it's funny how those things sometimes happen at the same time. And right about that time as well, I started uh, a meditation practice just on my own. In, in, and I was introduced to meditation through Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier. Sure. Happened to pick it up in a bookstore, thought, oh, this looks pretty interesting. And then went through uh, uh, the Headspace app and then found some local uh, Buddhist centers close by here. So I attended a couple of retreats and got grounded in a mindfulness form of meditation. So that was just happening when everything blew up in, in my life at that time. And so I had to really gravitate back to that because I could no longer go to the Christian faith because I didn't have that anymore as a foundation. So I doubled down into my meditation practice. Um, I remember going for walks, long walks every day. Uh, up um you know uh, i don't know if you remember i lived in rockland but yeah with the oaks up there yeah the right when the oaks and hill work yeah. lots of hill work so i would walk for hours and meditate and i would say pray but i didn't know what i was praying to right i mean i i guess i was praying um uh, and just just trying to hang on yeah dealt with deep depression um suicidal ideation that was never going to come to fruition because of my kids um you, you know my kids brandon and lexi and they're amazing fantastic kids and there's no way i would do anything to myself because it would harm them right so but at that point that was my little bit of a thread that i was hanging on to but gradually my meditation practice blossomed and bore more and more fruit. And I ended up actually getting initiated into Vedic meditation. And this, this was now five years ago, back in April, 2000 and April, 2018. And through that whole process learned a lot about how I process things and my mind. And, and it brought me to a real good place of healing I, I would say and 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 there, so there's a lot more to that but that's that's kind of in a nutshell how I, I came into a, a meditative pathway I yeah. suppose as a as a way of finding healing and wholeness in my life right and so now I, I still practice my Vedic meditation twice a day uh 20 or 30 minutes and, and there's other self-care, self-help practices I do, but I would say that that's probably the foundation of my spiritual practice um, that's brought me up to this point. So I'll jump in here because I want to give you a little bit of a frame of how we do these podcasts. Sure. Um, a, a big part of why we named it Living in the Matrix is we believe to a certain extent we're in almost like a simulation but we do live in it. And the story arc of the matrix is this person sort of crossing that chasm of their own uh, demise at the same right. time of rebirth. Yeah. And so that's the human journey. Some call it the hero's journey. Um, and 
we can find a ton of really good examples in history, um, but everybody has an arc and we explore that arc. And especially those who are choosing to live outside of the status quo. I want to take you back to the beginning and ask, what first attracted you to your faith in the beginning? And it sounds like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you said you needed structure. What did that do for you? Tell me, unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah, sure. So, so this is going back to more of my teenage years, right? Mm -hmm. I, I was extremely ungrounded, right? And, and so at that time, when I say I needed structure was because I didn't really have any sense of who I was, where I came from, or, or where I should be going, right? Do I live a life of rebellion and get into mm -hmm. drugs like a lot of my friends? Um, do I... Uh, do I care about anything? Do I just, you know, rebel against everything and be an anarchist and skateboard around and do whatever? And for some reason, I could not, I couldn't really tell you why, but there's something that resonated at that time about a Christian message of, um, of having a hope of a savior for something, right? And to give me at that time some structure. And being that, that's what I was, that was the only thing I was exposed to. That was the only mm -hmm. worldview that I had exposed to. I grabbed onto it like a life rope, okay? Because I didn't have any other context to evaluate. And, and so in hindsight- Were you at the orphanage at that time? Yes, I was. That's right. This, yeah. was, a, um, this was the Sierra Christian Children's Home in Vacaville. And so we went to church, right? And that that's just what we did at, as in, in the group home. And I went to the Bible camps and-, and Oh, got, did you have your Bible camp moment around the campfire where everybody absolutely. raises their hand and oh, says, yeah. I'm saved, yes. Yes, and go down to the river and get baptized. Yeah. yeah. There you go. And, and you know, the, the, the funny thing or the weird thing is as a post-evangelical, at first, I raged against that entire thing. I don't anymore. I, I really have come to grow, grown to love some of those memories and appreciate it for what it was and for where it brought me on this journey. Um, so, yeah. So that's that's why I, I, I didn't. I needed to have that lifeline because I I couldn't find any other ground without it. So, what resonated with you at that beginning was it connecting to a youth group or having someone kind of pour into you emotionally what really kind of or was it like like when I was 11 years old I had an experience where someone explained what Jesus did and I started bawling I I was like it 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 hit me emotional and that yeah, yeah it, so what was it for you that in that moment that really kind of said this feels like home at this time yeah it was definitely a thing of God loves me Mm -hmm. that, that that really clearly was what it was because I felt like I was unparented okay mm -hmm. I, I didn't I, I didn't have a mother that really cared about me because she put me in an orphanage um, I didn't have a father because he abandoned us you know when I wasn't I wasn't even born yet so I, I didn't even know who my father was until I was seven and lived with him for two years and then ended up in the orphanage. So I felt like I was parentless. And so the whole message of that there was this heavenly father uh, that was there that could capture and hold me, that's what really ultimately uh, brought me to the Christian faith. I, th I think that's awesome. And 
what's so really interesting about that is our last podcast guest, um, he is a Christian universalist who has a totally different view of the God, kind of God that you and I were raised on uh, in the evangelical world, a God that um, sent his son to, to, to save us from the wrath that's coming, right? He's got his wrath, he's pouring out on sin, and Jesus is our propitiation, right? He's there almost in the courtroom, passing this righteousness, this clothing of righteousness to us. And the father part is so important because the first thing that he says is God needs to be a loving parent. And he doesn't mm -hmm. say father, it's parent, right? Because what was so missing, and I think why it was grasping you so well, was that having a family, having, you know, people to hug and to love. I mean, when you don't have that physically, you've got it, you know, spiritually, right? Right. And if he had, if, if you had learned the way he learns about this is a loving father who will never forsake you. And the idea of his universalism is I will never allow my children to suffer ultimately, right? I might let them go off and do something stupid like the prodigal son did. And that was a, an example. It's perfect. That that son knew that he blew it, but ultimately he, he something inspired in him to do that. And so the idea of universalism, which is crazy enough, is everybody through eons of time, no matter how bad you've been, will ultimately come to the loving arms of the Lord because it'll right. be that reconciliation, which is a glorious thought, right? Right. But I wanted to pivot because I think maybe the reason why Scott was so important in your life is you went to Pepperdine. Maybe that was the brother you never had. So tell us a little bit about your journey at Pepperdine and as your faith kind of grew and blossomed, tell us a little bit about, you know, your 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 friendship and, and what happened um, in your undergrad. Yeah, sure. So that that started exposing me to a broader Christian um, worldview, if you will, because the the fellowship that I grew up with was um, was the Church of Christ. And so okay. th that's like one of the most fundamentalist of the fundamentalist evangelical Christian groups, right? I mean, it, you talk about a really small box. that Acapella that, too, right? There's no music. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, okay. There's no music or anything. So, so going to Pepperdine was where I got exposed to this broader world of non-denominational Christians and, and Baptists and Presbyterians and who knows what, right? From all this, all this different stuff and and instrumental music, right? Well, they there there wasn't any on campus, but well, but, ironically, Pepperdine is Church of Christ, but it just tends to be a more watered down because we're more is it really? I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, is. it, it is watered down, yeah, right. And and that and so having that broader exposure and making friends from other different faith backgrounds and non-Christians too, right? I mean, I, I am making friends with, with, it's not like you have to be uh, a, a CFC person to go to Pepperdine. And so that exposure was actually pretty fundamental to, to my um, exploring other paths. And interestingly enough, I, I was mentored at that time by uh, a new professor there, um, Dr. Dr. Glenn Webb, really, really interesting guy, but he was he was brought there to be the head of their Asian studies division. And yeah, for, for some reason, he and I just really hit it off and I took his class. I was just drawn to it. And that was my real first exposure to Buddhism because mm -hmm. he was very much, I mean, I'm looking at this in hindsight, but he was very much like a Christian Buddhist right? 
but yet he's at Pepperdine. So he's got to toe the line as, hey, I'm a Christian. I signed the document and all that. But he was very Buddhist. And he gave me a, couple, uh, a piece of uh, Buddhist art. I still have it. It's in my house somewhere um, to this day, right? Thir 30 years. Of course. Later. Formative. Yeah. But that he gave me the first exposure to Buddhist and Vedic thought, actually. I, I wrote this entire paper on, um, on the Vedic worldview. Uh, and so that was my first exposure, not only to a broader Christian worldview, but, oh, there's actually something else here. And hey, here's this an adult that I really respect and admire. And he seems to have some kind of a practice or something else that was extra biblical or, or you know, biblical. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and so Scott and I actually met after he graduated. He was a couple of years behind me. Okay. So we, we didn't actually meet until uh, I moved to Rockland and he moved, me and Becky moved to Rockland about the same time. Okay. And we ended up connecting over biking and, and our faith because he was also uh, um, formerly from Church of Christ and we ended up started mountain biking and that that's where our friendship really blossomed over the years as is, is uh, we we just go on rides all the time and, and inevitably end up talking about faith and the meaning of life and spirituality and so in in some ways our journeys paralleled each other over over the years as I started to move more and more away from uh evangelical Christianity and just this slow deconstruction mode he and i moved along very much in parallel um un until you know until the end there wow. right a couple yeah. of years ago now byron did you grow up with a sense of um i christianity is like my home it's my religion and there's a moral box you grew up in that when you got to pepperdine and beyond that sense of exploration felt like a little bit guilty or did you feel comfortable with it because you felt you had permission? I wouldn't say I felt like I had permission per se. My faith or my, this, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but my faith and my relationship with God felt a little bit out of the box, even from, mm. from other Christians, because even way back then, when I heard the doctrines of Calvinism and Tulip and, and all that, even at Pepperdine, and I, I something about that just did not sound right to me. And so I think at heart I was always a universalist because it, it just it was just incongruent to me that how could a loving parent create a situation that their own child yeah. had no control over and then you're going to cast them away it, it's just like it's an absurd story it's it, incoherent yeah it's, it was incoherent yeah. right it yeah. was incoherent but i dared not ever speak of that publicly right and so i would read all these books trying to go what how can this be right and then and and that was a little bit too where you know you start like reading hints of other thinking that, well, there, there might be more to the story 
understand that. And that was actually the, the thread that Scott and I pulled on together was the Christian universalism thing, right? And then, and at some point, you know, we we both started listening to Rob Bell, right? Of the, course. The gateway. <laughs> the gateway. He's the gateway pastor. Yeah. <laughs> he is, I love Rob. Rob was probably the most influential person oh. during my entire deconstruction. Yeah. We, we probably went, was, was that when he was at Mars Hill? Yes. Sure. Right. And then after, right? And yeah. Exactly. But, but started to secretly listen to Rob. Bell. <laughs> right. You know, what's really sad is that my, my church, my, my men that we were in, um, you know, men's group together started listening to the NUMA um, video series and the dust of the rabbi and all this stuff. And when I opened up page 26 of Velvet Elvis that talked about that faith, um, crisis of faith is, and, and the question by, by Rob was, is your faith like a trampoline or is it like a, brick wall and are you able to bounce back and forth from things or if you pulled something out of that wall let's say that it was mary and larry right and so jesus wasn't born of a virgin right would that make your faith crumble and i told i i shared that passage with my friends and i said guys this is this is a non-starter this seems kind of, kind of ridiculous to me and we, we, i i helped them stop reading rob bell now I have four or five Rob Bell books and I love him more than I He got converted. It's like, no, it's just, it's just reasonable. Right. And I think you and I, we've all done the same thing. Pete ends. Right. Right. Rob Bell, little bits of, you know, things here and there. And I think we, we wrestle with it. And this is, this is the other thing why we love Rob Bell so much is because he tells us how rabbis wrestled with it. Right. The joke is, you know, two rabbis have been wrestling for 20 years about a scrap you know, a scriptural passage and God's, Hey guys, blah, 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 what's going on? They're yelling at them. Hey, leave us alone. We're working on this, right? That kind of silly kind of scenario. And I think that's what was so refreshing. It's like, hey guys, there's another perspective. You know that not everybody believed in this. It, this is this kind of belief that we have, mm -hmm. you know, cast onto the 20th century of modernity is not the way things worked. And, and we just right. learned, you know, recently, you know, that in universalism, um, Byron, the early church fathers like Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, Clement of Alexandria, you know, these people right. were universalists, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Origin. Well, of that's, yeah, go ahead. That's one of the powers of the box. Yeah. Is the box is a protector from things that you're not smart enough to understand. So just trust us. And that's the narrative that you grow up under evangelical Christianity. And understand that there's really powerful, good things inside that box. So this is not a blanket. It's bad. It's the, the walls of the box are the problem. And what I love is in that world, you feel safe, you feel comfortable because in, in a lot of ways you save the thinking for other people. You really, you just listen on Sunday, you go to community on Wednesday or whenever you meet with your small group. And the idea is you learn the knowledge inside of the box the problem is, is that the box really is a state of fear because it right. never allows itself to effectively be challenged. And when I started asking questions outside the box, I got in a lot of trouble for it. But I, I was, so Byron, what was it like getting outside of the box for you? Well, for me, getting outside the box um, coincide, coincided with the end of my at the time, nearly 30 year marriage and getting us so what happened? means that it, it all blew up. Well, I mean, I, I, 
just stop going to church. It, it, it was because it, it was like that whole thing didn't work anymore, right? It, it was not only, not only did the marriage uh, end, but the promises of being in the box and, you know, being a good Christian boy and all that should result in a great long life, lifelong marriage. And it didn't. And, mm -hmm. and the books made no sense anymore. The, it's like, none of it made any, it, it was, it was like looking at a, one of these optical illusions where you shift it just a little bit and it's a completely different picture. And I felt like that's what literally happened with me. It was like, all of a sudden I looked at it and said, none of this makes sense anymore. Right. And there was a thread, however, that still made sense to me that still somehow in spite of the deconstruction and, and leaving evangelical Christianity, the underlying thread that was still there was somehow there was a uh, another hmm. There was something about a foundational being of love. Mm -hmm. there. So you never lost track of the love part. That's right. There was still something there that was meaningful that um, that resonated really deep in my soul. And I just was trying to find my way back to it. And, and I felt like there's always something there beyond the, the, real, the quote, reality and importance of what I'm doing day to day, right? It, and, and for a while, you know, I, there may have been a point where it, it, in, the, in, my, in my deepest points of despair, I flirted with just nihilism and and there's no God, there's no nothing or whatever. And that would have led me to a really bad place. But it was even underlying that, I felt like, no, there, there is something else. There is, we're more than just molecules and meat and bones, right? Yeah. And it was starting- Did you go into a depression? Oh, yes. Very deep depression. Uh, I, I mean, I, up until- the last four or five years, I, I, I had struggled with major depression, right? So I've been on, um, whatever, <laughs> all meds. the different, yeah. all the different meds, right? Tried all the various SSRIs and all that and ended up on Wellbutrin. That seemed to be the best one for, for the last, uh, many years, but no, I struggled with chronic depression till probably about four years ago, four or five years ago. So a lot of what then brought me out of all this, again, was, was starting to reframe a, a different view of life, right? But one that still contained an element of something much bigger than me and something that I could be a part of. And there was a foundation of, of a being of love there somehow, even mm -hmm. though it was undefined, right? But there, the most there. doesn't even have to be defined. And this is what right, I think. Right. This is it doesn't have to be defined. Certainty, right. right. Certainty, you can't name it, but it's there. And that is the hope that we need, right? There's something, and 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 I think, and Dr. Hawkins, you know, talks about this on, in terms, and Dispenza talks a little bit about it too, um, Byron. But, you know, there's this level of being zero, which is death to what, 600, Jonathan, which is this highest state of consciousness. And even if you've got a glimmer, even something that gets you angry, 
or or at least you know at, at least a, a showing of things at, at least when you get above that stage of grief and, and 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 brokenness if you can at least move in the right direction i think there's something always pulling us in that direction right i think that is god that is love or that is cosmic consciousness you know which i think you've kind of tapped into in a really cool way over the last couple of years as you've gone deeper into your meditation wow. now i wanted to ask um are you still on Wellbutrin or have you found that you've been able to ease off of that as you get deeper into your meditation and, uh, and, and yeah, four your... years ago. Oh, that's great. So yeah, you're, part of that. yeah, see that, see, yeah. Th th this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. And I think we've already seen, there's been studies recently that Alzheimer's, what they've talked about, that whole study was a joke and the, the cure for else. I mean, the research that they did on Alzheimer's was completely wrong. And then they're finding that, Things like meditation, healthy exercise, sun, and you know, and, and diet can actually help a lot of depressive, the depression kind of circumstances. So, Absolutely. you know, what, what what could you tell our audience about um, how you navigated away from the meds and got yourself free of that in, in terms of you know um, meditation or other other routes? Yeah. So. So there, uh, a slight digression, and then and then to to get to that. Sure. This is where I want to bring up a bit about um, various ancient schools of spirituality, right? Be it, I mean, I'm I'm a lot more familiar now with um, the Buddhist worldview and the Vedic worldview, right? And so, what's been really really interesting to me, and 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 a lot of this is my interest in how do I deal with managing the depression that I experienced, right? And I don't say anymore, my depression. And that that is a very key thing. It very much was a, a state of mind that I experienced and that I still do experience from time to time now, but it's a very different experience. Now it, it's an experience as opposed to it's me, as opposed to this is something that I'm in, right? It, no, it's not at all. It's something that I witness as a state of experience did you ever feel that though did you ever feel like your depression was you oh absolutely yeah oh, i think that's what a lot of people really wrestle with i've been my depression so, feels so like me it, it's like it's like the blanket it's like the weighted blanket that i'm sitting on but it's on me and i'm seeing through it i'm breathing it and there was no there was no way out and there was no hope or anything and and with my uh with my change in consciousness, I'll say, I don't know how, probably other ways to explain it. I no longer feel that way at all, ever. Now, when I have an experience of the depression symptoms, I could see it, oh, here's this, here's the depression friend again. Why are you here? Are you here to protect me? Is there something you're trying to teach me? I I take it much more as a, as a state of curiosity and as Incredible. like, oh, Here's something now that I'm experiencing. Why am I experiencing this? Is there, is there something to learn here? Or what am I, what am I, is there a state that I'm in or experiencing that's bringing this on? Right. Was there a moment that you learned that and it shifted from being you to a lesson? Because I think that's brilliant. I think that's Powerful. sort of the jump is how do you get from it's me to it's something speaking to me as a lesson? And that is the path of meditation. 
it is very much from having a daily consistent meditation practice. Um, I, I haven't missed a meditation session in, in eight years. So wow. I, and I've never missed a day. It's not always twice a day. I mean, for, for, for a while, it was just once a day. Um, but you know, I'm like batting a thousand right now. And and I'm not saying that to pat me on the back, but I'm saying there's a thing about the consistency of practice in little tiny steps. Mm -hmm. That's what makes your life. And so it's, it was gradually over the course of practicing mindfulness meditation and then transitioning into Vedic meditation that the witness emerged. Okay. And, and so by that, the deeper sense of awareness that that starts to emerge by which I can see and choose how I respond to the states of experience that I have now, be it here's depression. What does it teach me? Here's anger bubbling up. Am I going to respond? Here's fear coming in. Um, okay. So I want to stop you because that to yeah. me is the critical moment. Rich mentioned Dr. Hawkins and he's, I've been following Dr. Hawkins. He has what's called, have you ever heard of Dr. Hawkins? I have not. Okay. So he created what's called the, the energy consciousness scale. It's from zero to hundred or zero to a thousand and zero is death. Oh, okay. um, like 60 and 80 is guilt and shame. And then courage is 200. Courage is the beginning of positive action. How did you flip from negative to positive? What was the beginning process of that? When did you say, I've got to start yeah. doing something? Before Byron answers that question, I'm, and while he processes it, I think one of the important things that for our audience to understand um, is in meditation. So Byron has been doing this for eight years. One of the first things you learn in meditation, Jonathan, and so it's, it's, it's going to be impossible for our audience to say, oh, I'm really depressed now, chronically, if I'm in a fetal position, if I start meditating, I'm immediately going to get better. And I don't want mm -hmm. our audience to have that understanding right. first. Secondly, the, one of the first things you learn in meditation is you are not your thoughts. So let's go mm -hmm. beyond this heavy mantle of this depression and anxiety to, mm -hmm. oh, I'm thinking about this proposal. I'm, 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 I'm this. And the first thing you're, you're supposed to remember is you are not your thoughts, whatever it's fear, anxiety, you're thinking about a date yep. and you start to process that. And then you let them swim around you a little bit. And this is where we've got this idea of equanimity, where you've got this torrent of stress and storm and you're in the circle of it. So I think what Byron has figured out is this is the lens of depression that, that, that caught him. And now it just exists out here. It doesn't really affect him too much until every now and then this comes in, but to get to a, I think a starting level, at least where I'm understanding, is when you start to realize that you are not your thoughts, which is a little bit um, of a first step to, um, hey, depression, how you doing, right? You can get to a place where the more and more you do it, the more your mind rest, recognizes that you're not your thoughts, and then you're having those very, very calming moments. So, Byron, I, I don't know if that was helpful, but... Um, yeah, I think, it yeah. is. Because you, it, it's helpful to have the intellectual construct in place of that right of, of saying well i'm not my thoughts i'm not my feelings what i am is pure awareness what mm. i am is the fundamental being of consciousness and so you can say that from an intellectual construct but to actually viscerally experience that that's the training ground of sitting on the cushion 
right? Because I, I could say, you know, I could give you an extra, you know, you, you know me, I'm pretty fit, right? Yep. For my age and all that. Well, I could tell you what to do and I could write out a really good exercise program and get you doing it. And so you can understand the framework of how all this fits together. But if you don't, if you don't get to the gym and lift the weight, it, it's not going to exactly. happen. Yeah, exactly. it's not going to happen. Right. It, it's, it, it's in the daily consistent practice that it happens. So, so I would say, uh, Jonathan, answer your question. It, it was a process over time and, and I, I couldn't really give you, uh, and during this time, I'm still on meds, I'm, you know, for, mm -hmm. for the first four years as I'm doing this, I, I was still on antidepressant meds, but I was slowly tapering, <laughs> really, a really, really slow taper, right? And, and, and there was a point, you know, you go to the doctor's office and you do the scale. I, I don't know what the name of the scale is. And one time I went in, and so this is four or five years ago. And the, and the doctor looked at scale and was like, oh, well, I don't know. I don't really know. You don't seem to be having as many of these symptoms anymore. What's going on? And and that's when we did the final taper, right? And and I did the final, because you, you've got to go really mm -hmm. slow. Yes. You've got to go really slow off. Kill of you. Stuff. Yeah. And so I tapered over a year and, and finally got tapered off. And so, uh, so that was that. But but I would say that the, my meditation practice was fundamental to it, but there's a lot of other things that you have to do too. I, I, I don't want to say meditation is the end all be all, but, but it certainly formed the basis from a consciousness perspective. Okay. Uh, but the other things that were super important exercise daily. I, I mean, when I was in the depths of my recovering from the divorce and, and all that, I mean, I was walking for hours and, and biking and weightlifting and getting outside on the paddleboard, um, getting morning sun, right? Oh, and this is my little tangent here about the, the spiritual practices. There are a lot, there's a lot of wisdom in ancient spiritual practices that phenomenologically make sense, even though from a uh, empirical rationalist standpoint, may not, they may not necessarily know why, right? They'll come up with an explanation for it that might be mystical, spiritual, and who knows? It could be a mystical, spiritual explanation. It could be, you know, whatever. But the fact is, phenom phenomenologically, there's still benefit and it still works, right? right. So one of the practices, for example, uh, Sriya Namaskar, the sun salutation, right? That, that we learn in Vedic worldview where, um, early in the morning, you go greet the morning sun, face the sun, have the sun come in your eyes as you go through your asana uh, for your Sriya Namaskar. Well, that was embedded within the practice, right? And so there was portions of that that I did at learning through my Vedic worldview. And then years later, right, like a year ago, whatever, I hear on Huberman's podcast, and he explains mm -hmm. thing about getting sunlight in your eyes right and so right. now yep. you've got a marriage of an ancient spiritual practice or i would say spiritual technology that actually adds relevance uh in our neurology right to affect this change well that was a key piece of it i would i would always get the morning sun somehow 
And I would not necessarily do the full asanas, but I'd at least sit in the sun or walk in the sun or something, getting early sunlight um, in my eyes. So huge. Yeah, that was huge. So that was a piece of it. And and being fairly um, careful of my diet, honestly. Yeah. You know, I don't eat a lot of processed foods. I don't eat a lot of refined sugar. Uh, very much a uh, whole food based diet for the most part. I splurge every once in a while. Speaking but, of splurging, how was the breakfast burrito up at uh, Doghouse? Doghouse. That's my splurge, right? You're the one. <laughs> uh, I just went there today. <laughs> you did? Oh, that's Absolutely. awesome. Yeah. You know, got off my, got off my two hour bike ride up in uh, Nevada city and headed to Doghouse and got my little mule burrito, man. So <laughs> I heard it's amazing. My buddy, James, um, uh, Jonathan, we've got a doghouse 25 minutes South and they open at nine. He goes, it's the best breakfast burrito I've ever had in my life. And he said a lot of them. So go to check out the little mule at doghouse. So, um, and you know, that's another thing also, right. We can get to a point where we can get so, um, as, what do you call it? Um, asceticism that you, there's a place where your body actually, no, give it a little break every now and then Jonathan, when we did our intermittent fasting, when you do your intermittent fasting, you know, yeah. on weekends, it's like, no, you know what? I'm going to have a little food in the morning, right? So we, it's always about balance too and context, right? Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So Byron, let me ask you this. How did you, because this is one of the key things we wanted to talk about is that emergence from that depression started with the process of meditation. How did you get into it? Like who helped you discover it? And tell us a little bit about that journey, because that's sort of the rise and the that you mentioned two years of bliss. How did you get there? Yeah, so, so I was initiated in Vedic meditation about five years ago by uh, Charlie Knowles, who's the son of Tom Knowles, who's, I, I don't know if he has an official title, but he's, he's uh, one of the followers, I don't know what we call him, students of Maharishi. Maharishi. Yogi, yeah. yeah, right. So, so there was a split be, from uh, Tom split from TM, um, and, and I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth about that. Transcendental um, meditation, Jonathan. Yeah, T from transcendental, right, yeah. right? You know, which is trademarked and all that. So, I, to me, it's like fundamentally, they're 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 probably the same thing, honestly. But yeah. you know, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> but for our listeners, but give us a right. sense of what is Vedic meditation. What's yeah, sort sure. of the core of it? Yeah, the core of it is your your teacher initiates you and gives you a mantra, uh, which is a uh, a sound that doesn't have any meaning per se. I think it actually does, but let's just say for now it doesn't really have any meaning. But the but the point of it is uh, there there are many different forms of meditation. This particular form, be it TM or Vedic meditation, um, it's it's considered a transcending technique because what you're doing is you're sitting quietly and letting the sound that you think silently in your head, softly and effortlessly, you're letting that sound guide your mind into increasingly more subtle, deeper states of consciousness and rest. And you do that generally twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. 
and through this process, and it is an effortless thing. It, it's different than some of the other techniques. Because again, I, I did train and yeah. I did um, more of a um, vipassana technique, right? Uh, or or it, it, which is a very specific focus on the way that I learned it. Focus on your breath, but you can. There's different anchors you could do, but breath is the most common one. And so instead of a focusing technique, it's more of a letting go technique. Okay. So I would say that the Vedic meditation, transcendental meditation, it's much more of a letting go and surrendering technique. Okay. And so in that process, you end up surrendering your thoughts. You end up surrendering your feelings. You end up surrendering your impressions, your discomfort. All of it is surrendered. And in slowly thinking the mantra, you gradually drift down into a more and more subtle state of consciousness and rest. And at that deepest level, you're connecting with your being. Okay. And I don't want to say you're, you're connecting with being. Unified field. Yes. And it's, 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 it's really hard to describe unless you've been there and done it but it's a state of non-thinking. It's just, it's being, and you know, you know, you've been there when you come out of it and it's, it's like you've been in a time warp and I've worn my heart rate monitor and different things, you know, there uh, to, to just, cause I'm just curious. Okay. What's really happening. And, um, and I've seen it at when I med- meditated sometimes in the middle of the night, every once in a while, I can't sleep. I'll meditate in the middle of the night. And the most interesting thing is right during meditation and afterwards, my heart rate goes down to the lowest level, even below baseline. It's it's the below 50. Yeah. Wow. Well, my 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 resting heart rate is normally 56. That's my that's my 55, 58. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's 56, 58. Yeah. But but I, I can't make the the heart rate thing. It, it's a Fitbit thing. I, so I, I can't really control it. Maybe I need to get an Apple watch. So it's got <laughs> controls, but it'll show my heart rate going down below my baseline. It's the weirdest thing. That's amazing. Yeah. So now I don't experience that every time that I meditate. I mean, the, the whole point of it is I'm surrendering to the process. I'm surrendering to the experience and I'm not trying to control it. I'm not trying to come up with an expectation like, oh, I've got to get at peace with this. I, I, it's not that at all. Because sometimes during the process of meditation, there will be significant, um, significant unstressing of past carried stress, past carried, maybe even past carried trauma. Um, I, I'm hesitate, I hesitate to use that word in my, in my life because I, I don't want, well, no, I'm not going to apologize for it. For me, it was trauma, right? The the, the sure. trauma of the force, the trauma of facing Scott's death. I mean, we didn't we didn't bring that up yet on the podcast, but but my good friend Scott, um, he he ended his life uh, a couple of years ago. And that was a really shocking, hard experience for me. Um, and up until that point in time, you know, it was like, hey, I was he and I had actually scheduled, I was going to train him in meditation, right. And, and bring him through it. And then he had, 
and uh, he was supposed to have, he was scheduled for ketamine therapy and I was trying to talk him into doing psilocybin, you know, I mean, and right. We talked about he that. Ended his life. Right. Right. He ended his life before all that stuff happened. So I've, I've had to really try to absorb that. Right. And over the last couple of years, it's still, it's still hard. Still, I, I'm still affected by it, but, but what I'm experiencing in on the cushion and meditation and letting go and letting even those feelings arise and fall and pass away. Um, and, and it does. And, and, and I think gradually, whatever residual stress, whatever residual trauma has been released through this process of meditation with my increasing connectedness with being. And it's hard, you know, like I said, it, 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 when I say it in words, it sounds, it sounds kind of uh, spacey, maybe whatever, but, but the fact is it, it, is it has worked. Yeah, it has worked. And it has brought me into a much better place now. I think that idea of state of being is really important because even in the Christian scriptures, God doesn't want to be named. God says, leave me as un I don't yeah, leave me as unbounded as possible. Don't put words to me. And I think there's a very important reason because the more we create words, the more we create the box. Box, yeah. Yes. And the answer was I am. Say right. say I am. The right. answer was I am, exactly. That's yep. exactly Tell the I answer. Sent you, right? That's Tell pure I am. Being, right? Yes, pure being. And so I don't think you're far off. I think that's the the sort of the intersection of where we are at in today's world is the Christian world has lost its influence. But in that vacuum that's created by that, all of these other ideas can start playing in the playground. And we realize, oh my goodness, there's a lot to learn from each one of them. They all take, they're all part of the elephant and everybody's got a different leg and going, oh, it feels like this. What if they all started talking to each other in a room where there was no judgment? That would be ridiculously powerful because there's something to learn from everybody. Very much. Yeah. So when you dealt with Scott's suicide, did depression visit you again? It did. So what did it, what it, what was the lesson in that moment? Did you kind of dive into that or did you just let it happen? Yeah. So, so I definitely experienced the grief and and the pain of that. And I, and I still do from time to time. Um, But the difference in the experience of facing that day versus facing the divorce, right? Years ago is that I experienced the grief. I don't push it away. It's, it's not, Mm. I let it come. I don't push it away. I let it come. I cry. Yeah. If I need to, um, I get mad. I get mad at him. And then I'm like, I'm sorry, dude, I'm not really bad at you. <laughs> I just wish you're here. Mm-hmm. And then I realize, well, he's, he actually is here. His consciousness is still around. Absolutely. And on some of my bike rides, I experience him on some of our favorite rides together that I do uh, up in Nevada city. I experience his presence. So, so I still feel that the oncoming 
cloud of depression, but it's not, it's not a fog that just covers me and um, um, envelops me and makes it hard for me to breathe or to get up right now. It's just, okay, well, I'm, I have this experience. It's okay. I, I, I will be okay. I'll get through it, but I'm not going to push it away either because I, I need to feel what I'm feeling for now, but it's just, a it sounds like, Okay. It sounds like you're saying that the Vedic meditation really gave you the ability to sit with it so you could realize you actually could handle it. Would you agree Absolutely. with that? Yeah. Right. So, it, what, it wasn't was, going to kill me and it wasn't going yeah. to set me into a permanent fetal position. Yeah. Wasn't it interesting, ironically, that we were talking about boxes, that uh, it was Buddha himself that was behind the walls of the city, right? Isn't, um, what was his um, journey? Is, wasn't Buddha's journey, in, wasn't he, Siddhartha Gautama, wasn't he actually a really rich prince that- He was, was a prince, right. He was a prince in one of the yeah. main provinces and, his, and, and his, uh, his father, the king, tried to keep him shielded behind the wall and not have to face the reality of the- <laughs> In the suffering that was outside the world. And so sounds like evangelical Christianity. There you go. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but Gautama, when he finally was out of the wall, he found a better way, right? Right. He found a better way and and a path that uh that allowed him to bring light to other people and to help him alleviate suffering, which is ultimately what I think we're all here for, right? Is we relieve ourselves of the suffering and then by being, I think, connected to being, um, finding the underlying love in God. And then from our place of healing, we're able to now help end suffering for others and bring other people along as best as we can. I, I, you know, what's interesting is you go back and you really look at your arc that's essentially what Jesus wanted us to do is help alleviate suffering. What do you feel like you're still connected to Jesus or is it, it's, he's a little bit in the background. Where do you feel? No, like? I, I do. It it's, I'm just, I'm just not as much into a thing of, you know, him being God, right? Like he, he, he's one of the Trinity. He could be, I, I, I I tend to think of him as a as one of the very enlightened beings. I mean, he could be in the very form of God. Absolutely, he right. claimed to be. But the, but the, but a bit of the problem that I have is, well, I'm reading words from a book that was put together by a bunch of guys, and it's incomplete. And and we all know how the books were decided, kind of right. I mean, it was decided by yeah. by the winners. Yeah, by, by the winners. And there are many other texts that are not there that speak of a non-dual teacher that to me, I resonate a lot more yeah. with now, right? Yeah. Like a non-dual mystic. And so I tend to Did think- Did you ever read the book of Thomas? Yes. Yeah. And, and Have you ever read Enoch? And Mary and Enoch? Yeah, they, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of the apocryphal books that provide a very different view of Jesus. That's right. cut out. Yeah, that, that's that's right. I mean, he's when you read those, he sounds much more like a non-dual mystic, mm -hmm. and and with hints of uh, certainly learnings from the Vedic worldview. Um, right. So, but yeah, but I I still very much resonate with Jesus overall, um, in 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 many ways. 
Byron, one of the things that I shared with you um, as I was investigating transcendental meditation was that David Lynch um, video, right? Where he's kind of walking the person through the process and he talks about going deep and he talks a lot about bliss as well, right? And so this constant process of, and bliss is something that's more than happiness, right? There's something that's more pervasive. And again, one of the things that we talked about is You've been through hell in a handbasket, you know, uh, orphan, you know, loss of a 30 year marriage. And um, after believing this is the construct, I, I thought I did the right things, et cetera, et cetera. And the loss of a really good friend. And yet we talk about the last couple of years for you have been not cloud nine necessarily, but let's right. say it's been a really right. good couple of years. So tell us about living in that kind of, of, of framework. Yeah, so so bliss or ananda, so much of this is language, right? It, it's the it's the impreciseness of language. So I would use words like contentment, mm -hmm. peace. Uh, I have an amazing life. I, I I mean I do just just in terms of outwardly and but more importantly inwardly, right? I mean I I I got remarried. Um, I've been married now for almost three years, a wonderful, amazing wife. Uh, we're very much spiritually aligned. Um, she's in a parallel spiritual path, but we, we very much support each other. But, but in many ways, I, I really want for nothing. And, and so from a sense of bliss, it, it's a thing of contentment. It's not, it's not a thing anymore for me of, I have to get this in order to be happy or to be fulfilled. Um, I, I, Rich, I told you a little bit about my psychedelic journey. That's right. I told Jonathan about it too. Let's let, let's flesh yeah, that out a little bit, shall we? Here's a little piece of it because this is this is really ties in to this whole thing of the bliss. Is is I is I went on a, a psilocybin journey. Um, I took five and a half grams of um, of the psilocybin mushroom, which is about 55, 55 milligrams. Right. It, it, it's more than a hero's dose. Yeah, yeah it's more than more than a hero's dose, and. And I certainly experienced synesthesia and saw the colors and, and had all the, you know, the, a lot of the classic things. I did not experience the dramatic ego death. Okay. Um, and it felt for me more of an incremental experience of bliss and connectedness. And it, it was more of an incremental broadening and brightening of my sensory perceptions and the very clear sense that I got is I don't need to go anywhere anymore. I don't need to seek. I don't need, I don't need to fly off to India. I don't need to become a monastery. I don't need to seek out yet another guru. It's already all here. It's already all within me. It's already all around me. And it was the most amazing contented state of bliss, but but it was even a thing of, but even that, it's not an experience I have to chase anymore. So I would bring the bliss back down from, it's not a thing of an ecstatic feeling or an experience that you have to get by ingesting something or getting something or anything like that. It's very much a state of consciousness to where I have an experience, a daily lived experience of being content and whole. Yeah. 
Um, a couple of things I'm thinking of is Alan Watts talked about, I mean, he was involved with a lot of friends. In fact, Ram Dass, right? Um, he, he was R Richard Alpert. Was that his name originally? Yeah, that's right. But I mean, a lot of his colleagues were doing a lot of acid and it was the LSD 25. That was the clinical stuff at the time. That was really good stuff, not the street stuff, but he took it one time. He felt cosmically aligned. And then he said he didn't need to take it anymore. He's like, right. you know, if you've got a call from the universe, you pick up the phone and once you get the message, you can hang that phone back up, right? And I think you and he are aligned in that way. And I think what's important is this is the power of the mind, right? We've been given something very special here. I do think that for those of us that are, haven't been in, in um, the levels of discipline you have for eight years, and those of us that, um, for instance, the John Hopkins experiments that we saw in the immortality key, right? At the beginning, I these folks took a massive dosage that were on um, stage four cancer, they were gonna die. Lots of fear, anxiety going on in their lives. And they had arguably the most significant experiences of their lives. Some of these people being atheists, Jonathan, agnostics mm -hmm. who felt this warm, loving presence of, of something cosmic and they couldn't name it God, but as sure as hell in their minds was as close to God as possible. And God blessed them, right, for that, for having that experience, right? But I think, um, Byron, what you're what you're describing is this evolution of a place where we can be, avoiding you know kinds of poisons like alcohol or the need for just getting lost in in the dream world, when in fact our own minds can do these amazing things for us, help us um, face all kinds of onslaughts, whether it's financial, spiritual, friends, you know, passing, and and then continue to move on. And you know you. What's ironic is, you know, Paul talks about being content in, in Philippians, I think, 2.10. I, I've been content in all kinds of situations. And, and certainly, I think I, I like to always tie back to the Christian illusion, but you've done it certainly um, from a Vedic standpoint. And that's what I'm going to be aiming for, right? Because my mind is very spacey, very ADD-like, and I, I, I'm, I'm glad we've been on this journey together. And, and Jonathan, um, Jonathan, I went uh, up to Rockland a few, um, like a month or so ago, and we meditated together actually, and it was effortless. It was just a great experience. And anyway, um, I can't recommend enough to our listeners to listen to this episode and, and to take Byron's um, words to heart and to encourage meditation in, in your daily practice. Absolutely. Byron, if you were to encourage someone to get into it, where should someone start? I think it would start with finding a qualified practitioner of Vedic meditation um, or transcendental meditation. It, it's it's whatever is more closer, more relevant to you. That being said, I'm not particularly sectarian. If you find that the Buddhist, one of the Buddhist paths resonates with you more, because it does. Some people do find that it's there there's many there, there there are several different paths of yoga okay um the bhagavad gita speaks of four different paths to god and different people will resonate with different ways of moving toward god it just happened to be for me that the vedic meditation pathway worked really well i think the buddhist meditation framework can work very well for others as well and there it, it's now this is now no longer a mysterious thing of something that's hard to find, right? It's pretty much in every community all around us. The, the thing that I would encourage the listeners to do is to just start doing it. Mm -hmm. Don't off. 10 minutes a day, right? I yeah. mean, just even start with 10 minutes a day. At minimum, if you can't find uh, an, 
a live teacher and all that, um, the Calm Meditation app, um, 10% Happier app, Headspace app, any of those apps, just try them out. And is that, I mean, that was my gateway was coming through the Headspace app at first and then uh, the Calm app before I ended up getting initiated into Vedic meditation. And so those, I those, think, and those, those are easy steps to take. I think that's an important point is part of the journey is figuring out your entry point because once you start in the meditation um, and you stick with it and you develop a practice, you can kind of get past the initial barriers, but the initial barriers are really big sometimes. They are. That's fair. Yeah. They're really big. And I think like I had a, uh, I set a reminder a year ago by a coach um, who invited me to start meditation. And I put in a reminder to meditate for four minutes. So I set my bar ridiculously low. And I looked at that reminder and checked it off every single day without doing it for almost nine months. And then when we, when we interviewed Jack Cruz, I finally found my entry point, which was I go outside, I put my, I put my, um, I take my shoes off. So I ground myself in the ground Great. electrically yes. and I put on a five minute reminder on my time watch. So I just, uh, and I stare at the sun. And so I'm kind of killing a bunch of birds with one stone. But here's the reality. It's not hard to stare at the sun. And over time, what I'm realizing is I've sort of eased into, oh, I'm present. And so it's finding that entry point. Right. And I think that's yes. the point of courage where we start. And it took me a long time yeah. to really get over that. So that's what I want to encourage our listeners. It's, uh, it may feel freaky. It may feel weird. But once you get into a rhythm, it feels very natural because you start seeing the fruits of it. And we're also that barrier, I think, is ultimately our ego that doesn't want to die. <laughs> right. Well, Byron, this has been fantastic. I, I, I knew this was going to be a great episode. And I, I it really is. it's going to speak to a lot of people out there. Um, we've got, you know, the constant you know, with, without COVID, um, the world is crazy enough. Right. And, um, you know, we're still reeling with stuff and a lot of uncertainty out there. Um, you're seeing stuff left and right. And, uh, I really appreciated your, your, your viewpoints, your, your journey and, um, what you've done practically, you know, in terms of meditation to help you be the most content you can possibly be. I mean, who, who doesn't need that in today's world, regardless of where they are. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It's been great. You guys. Awesome. Jonathan, any parting words? Byron, thank you for joining us. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Um, we're interested in people living outside the status quo, and you're definitely doing that. I think your deconstruction was really important, and it led you to a really good place. So much love to that. Much love to our listeners, too. Um, that's it. Have a great weekend. Uh, love to all. Cheers. Take care, everybody.